standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. So welcome back, everyone. It's good to have you here tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to expand our understanding of Daniel. And tonight we'll be going to Revelation to do that. But before we do so, I'd like to open with prayer. So, Father, again, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and just thank you that we all can be here this evening. We thank you for your mercy and goodness to us, and Jesus, I just thank you for the promise in your word that where you are, or where uh, two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. And so we claim that promise now, and Jesus, I just ask you to speak through me and use me, and not for any good that is in me, but I desire to be a blessing, and I know that you want to bless those that hear these words, and so we just pray all these things. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So, before we begin tonight, there's a verse I'd like us to consider. And that verse is found in Isaiah 28, verse 9. Isaiah 28, verse 9. And it reads, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, Line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if we're going to understand the Bible, we're admonished that we are to go to and fro in it, looking for line upon line, precept upon precept, and then we build an understanding. This is really what we have been doing with the chart. The first night we started with Revelation chapter 9 and 11, and we went down this line of prophecy where we were able to see that Islam, the Muslim, identified as the Midianite or Ishmaelite in the Old Testament, is something that is present tense reality for us today, especially as identified in the third woe. Now, tomorrow night, we're going to deal more with Islam and prophecy, and we're going to do it from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 45. So a little bit of foreshadowing there. Now, then we went on our second night to the line of prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, and we looked at this image with a head of gold, arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then feet part of iron and clay. And we saw that it was the history of four great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Rome in its two forms will then occur in the second line of prophecy, but then the feet mixed of iron and clay. Now in our second line of prophecy from Daniel 7, we ran it down with four beasts, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear raised up on one side, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and then a nondescript beast in two forms, and we see an expansion of Daniel 2. Then we went down the line of prophecy of Daniel 8, where we started with a ram and a goat, and then this little horn that becomes exceeding great. And what we see here is that all these are one revelation from Daniel 2 and then expansions. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to expand upon that by going to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, where in Revelation chapter 12, we have a dragon. And then in Revelation 13, we have another description of papal Rome. We have pagan and papal Rome in two forms in Daniel 7. We have greater understanding in Revelation 13 of papal Rome. And then what we're going to see this evening is that America is also introduced in Bible prophecy in Revelation 13. Now, as we go there, 
we'll be bringing out more concerning these strange and complicated powers, which really are a masterpiece deception of Satan. Now, John writes on three kingdoms, or when John is writing here in Revelation chapter 12, three kingdoms have already expired, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And so John is writing at the time of pagan Rome. So let's go to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, looking in verse 3. In Revelation 12, verse 3, we read, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for devour her child as soon as it was born. Now the first night, we referenced these verses. And we referenced these verses, we talked about how in symbolism, a woman, the woman being described here in Bible prophecy, would represent a church. And in this instance of Revelation 12, we're talking about a pure church through whom Messiah comes. And we see a dragon here. Now this dragon has the same number of horns as the nondescript beast that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. It has 10 horns on its head. But now we have some new features with these horns. We have seven heads. Now, we must understand that we're approaching prophecy in this seminar from a historical and literal perspective. You see, there are many spiritualistic ideas around these heads, a lot of confusion. Yet, if we are indeed dealing with pagan Rome, we would have to understand that the seven heads really represent seven forms of government that existed during the Roman Empire. Remember, John is writing at the time of pagan Rome's existence. And when you understand prophecy from a historical perspective, you begin to see that it is circular over and over again. The same ideas continue to be repeated over and over. Now, why is that? Because I believe God wants us to get it. He doesn't want us to miss it. So then, what are the seven heads are the seven forms of government in Rome. Well, number one was kingly, then counselor, then decimaretit, dictorial, trimuveret, and then imperial, which was at the time of John writing this. And then from there, we would move into papal Rome, the two divisions that we see in Daniel chapter 7. So John living in the sixth form. Five had fallen, one was, and one was not yet. And we see that idea, actually, if you go with me to Revelation chapter 17, verse 10, this is what is being spoken of there. It says here in Revelation 17, verse 10, and there are seven kings, I have fallen, and one is, the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Well, we know that the papacy had a time of power. But anyway, let's keep going. If you... We'll turn, well, let me do this before that. I want to read to you this as we think about this. In Revelation 12, 4, it could read something like this. And the dragon, pagan Rome, stood before the woman, the church, to devour her child, Christ, as soon as it was born, Revelation 12, 4. Now, do we see that in historical significance in the Bible? Well, we do, because if we go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, reading verses 1 through 3, we see this idea brought out. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? 
For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And then we will skip to verse 12 and read in Matthew chapter 2. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Who are these that were warned? The wise men. They don't go back. And in verse 13 it says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And then if you skip down to verse 16, we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from the two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So we see exactly what happened here. Herod tried to destroy Jesus, who was a Roman governor under dictate to be there. He was actually over the Jewish nation. Now, in Revelation 12.9, Revelation 12.9, we read, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, something to note as we're looking at Revelation chapter 12. We are saying that the red dragon represents Rome in its pagan form. And some have said, well, the dragon also represents the devil. And it does. They work together. Why is that? You see, the devil is also called the dragon in verse 9. His has been a master spirit, actuating more or less all the beasts of Daniel's and John's visions. Preeminently was this the case with pagan Rome. Hence the earthly power as the outward medium here takes the symbol of the who inspired its action. So honestly, yes, the enemy has been behind all these powers that we've dealt with. Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, Rome in its two forms and even today. Working behind the scenes to motivate men to do things that are contrary to the will of God. But basically in Revelation 12, we see that we are primarily dealing with pagan Rome as far as a kingdom that we're looking at. Revelation 13, we have another symbol brought to view. Let's go there now. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The emphasis here being on the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. Now, some have tried to interpret this as Satan, but it is pagan Rome. Pagan Rome gave its seat and power and great authority to the papacy. That is who pagan Rome gave it to. Now, we're going to get more clues as we look at these points of parallel between Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 13. In Daniel 7, we see that he shall speak great words against the Most High. That's Daniel 7:25. In Revelation 13, we're told he opened his mouth to blasphemy against God. Revelation 13:6. Now, keep in mind, we are hitting high points here. For sake of time, over a five-night period, to get into all the minute details, there's not enough time. But we are hitting the main point so you can get the big picture. In point two, 
It says in Daniel 7, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. That's Daniel 7, 21. In Revelation 13, 7 it says, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. We're seeing a parallel between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 as it concerns papal Rome. We continue our third point. It says in Daniel 7, 8 and 20, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things. And in Revelation 13 it tells us, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. That's Revelation 13, 5. Then our fourth point, they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and dividing of time. That's found in Daniel 7, 25. And we looked at this last night, the time, times, and dividing of time, and came to the understanding that represents 1,260 days. A day for your principle gives us 1,260 years. Now, in Revelation 13, it's described in a different way. It says power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. But we're talking about the same time here and the same power. That's Revelation 13, 5. 42 months times 30 days to a month gives us 1,260 days, 1,260 years. And then in Daniel 7, it tells us in verse 26, our point number 5, they shall take away his dominion. And in Revelation 13, 10, it says, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. A parallel to the dominion being taken away, Revelation 13, 10. So now, we have seen that in Revelation 13, we have the papacy being described again as it was described in Daniel chapter 7. Now this brings us then to Revelation 13, verse 11 and 12. In verse 11 we read, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. So this beast that comes up will have all the power of the papacy, papal Rome, and it says, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, that being papal Rome, whose deadly wound was healed. This is what the prophetic record is showing us. Now this beast is America, and let us look at points as to why I would say that, or why the prophetic record shows us that. Six points on why this would be relating to America. Number one is the location. As we think about these beasts that we've looked at so far, they are located in Europe. All Europe is occupied by the first beast and his ten horns. So we cannot look there for another beast. Whatever power is to rise must be a part of the first beast in ten horns if it was going to be there. Therefore, we have to look for this two-horned beast on another continent because... As we see from the line of prophecy, Europe is filled with the first beast and its ten horns. Let's keep going. In point two, 1798 is the time of the end of the 1260 years of papal domination. Starting in 538, add 1260 years, we come to 1798. 1798, the Pope went captive by France. No other notable power coming up in the world during this time but the United States of America. The only one. Third point, it's rise. It comes out of the earth. And this is going to make more sense this evening as we look deeper into this, because this is what we're going to do. But it comes up quiet and in a peaceable manner. Other beasts from the sea, wars and commotions, as we saw, Bible prophecy shows. 
And that is exactly how America rose, quiet and peaceably. Number four, its character. It has two horns like a lamb. And a lamb really is a fit emblem of the profession and early acts of the American government. But we are told it will speak like a dragon, a fit emblem for the hypocrisy that America has really become. From the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to now having all kinds of intolerance, political corruption, and oppression. Point number five, the government. No crowns on the horns. Therefore, the government cannot be a monarchical government. And that would be a fitting point for our American government, which started as a republic and is now identified as democratic. But one thing that we notice here in Revelation 13, 14, it says, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, saying is not the kind of language that would be associated with a power that is vested with supreme authority and an absolute head. It is the voice of a nation in which people participate, again, like the United States. And now, point number six, it's acts that it would do great wonders. Well, has America done great wonders? Well, I would say yes, because of all the wonderful discoveries of America, starting with steam power, electricity, communications from the telegraph, telephone, to modern cellular, to the automobile, to the airplane, to nuclear power, both destructive and productive, and all kinds of exploration. This falls on America, doing great acts. And a final note in dealing with all this is the two horns of the beast, denoting the two branches of power, church and state, but the idea of those two powers being separated. So now let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, and let's see if the prophecy of history revealed in advance, or the idea of prophecy being history revealed in advance, is shown to us. Revelation 13, 11 through 17 shows us America, but can we also see the idea in Revelation chapter 12? And I believe we can. Look here in verse 1. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand, a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, as I said earlier, the first night we talked about how the woman here is a figure for the church. This woman is God's true church. And what happens to this church? This church has to flee into the wilderness to escape Papal Rome's 1260 years of dominance, many times referred to as the Dark Ages. Now, we discovered the day for your principle last night. So who was this woman or slash church in the wilderness? Now, some might think Protestants. That's what I used to think. But those that reformed were from papal error were called Protestant. But they were persecuted for sure. But they were not necessarily those that had embraced papal ideas. 
being referred to here as the woman in the wilderness. There were people that had not done so. And they would be identified as the Waldensians, the French Huguenots, the Albigensians. The Protestant Reformation is something that came out of papal dominance. But there were those that never went in. They never were a part of it. And that is the woman that fled into the wilderness. Now, during this 1260 years of papal dominance, it's estimated that 50 million martyrs to 100 million martyrs. Let's read something here from an article about this. It says, Pope Francis officially apologized for persecuting Protestants on January 25th as he unveiled plans for a radical push for unity during the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. As the Bishop of Rome and pastor of the Catholic Church, I would like to invoke mercy and forgiveness for the non-evangelical behavior of the Catholics towards Christians of other churches. He said, at the same time, I invite all Catholic brothers and sisters to forgive if today or in the past they have suffered offense by other Christians. Well, certainly they would never have suffered offense like the Protestants had suffered or even the Waldensians, French Huguenots, and Albigensians. But I digress. Let me keep reading. It says, non-evangelical behavior is an interesting euphemism for the massive violence unleashed in the wake of the Reformation. Modern scholars estimate 50 million died in the religious violence that followed in persecutions, counter-persecutions, and religious wars. But the Pope and Protestant leaders are prepared to put aside or put all that aside as they get ready for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And that's taken from the trumpet, Richard Palmer, February 3rd, 2016. Now this would coincide with what we have seen in Revelation 12, 13 through 16. A flood of persecution so great that the woman or church needed help. Now, who would she need help from? She would need help from the earth. But before we go there, I do want to read to you Revelation 12, 13 through 16. In Revelation 12, 13, it reads, And when the dragon saw that he was cast upon the earth or unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So there is a flood of persecution towards the woman, a flood of persecution that is so great that the woman needed help. Needed help from whom? She needed help from the earth. And Revelation 13, 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Did America help the church, God's true people? He sure did. America, in principle, was founded by the pilgrims or Puritans who came here to escape persecution. Now, we have discussed prophecy as history in advance. Does the history of the pilgrims and America coincide with each other? Well, I believe you will see that it does. If you go with me to Job, Job chapter 38, we read something very interesting as we're defining the earth spoken of here in Revelation. We talked about this on our opening night. When we're dealing with figures, we go through the Bible and we trace down our figure. 
and we find our definitions for the figures. And we are looking in figurative language here because has the earth ever able to actually help someone in the truest sense? No, the earth is inanimate. If we think of something helping someone, we think of a person. So what is the earth representing here? In Job 38, verse 26, we get an idea. It says, to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man. So the idea of no one being around is what would help those Christians that were being persecuted. There was no one there to persecute them. The woman had to flee where no man is. And when the pilgrims fled, the spot where they landed had no one living there. Now, why is that? Well, we can read about the history of what was going on with America at that time because the pilgrims weren't necessarily the first ones to the Americas. There had been other ones there, and they had caused some problems for the natives that lived in America. And what were the problems they caused? Well, let's read. It says, For nearly a century before the landing of the Mayflower in 1620, the Nemaniscuk sporadically experienced direct contact by European explorers and for decades before that, indirect consequences of European cod fishermen off the Newfoundland banks. The effects of these early encounters, though gradual and perhaps unattributable, when they occurred were profound. Why were they profound? Because first and more immediately catastrophic, Europeans brought a variety of diseases for which the aboriginal population had no resistance. Mortality rates eventually rose to 90% throughout the entire continent. When the English settlers arrived, they discovered that vast swaths of southern New England, previously prepared for cultivation and settlement by extensive deportation and land preparation, was devoid of all inhabitants. They were killed by disease. Now, the pilgrims fled. Part of the reason that they had to flee was because of, it was mandatory in the European church of the Church of England to keep Christmas and Easter. Now, we'll have a little bit more on that in a moment because that might shock some of you. But what about this mandatory worship? Well, we read about this. It was called the Act of Uniformity. Under the Act of Uniformity in 1559, it was illegal not to attend official, to official Church of England services with the fine of one shilling. For each missed Sunday and Holy Day, the penalties included imprisonment and larger fines for conducting unofficial services. Some people even suffered death over these things. But we're going to talk a little bit more on this. Now, as we think about the pilgrims, the London Company was whom sponsored the pilgrims to come. Who were the London Company? Well, the London Company was a group of English investors looking to exploit financially from the New World. The problem was is that most of the people that would be willing to come to America, they were the riffraff. They were soldiers of fortune. They were prisoners. If they would be willing to go, they'd let them come. Why? because it was very dangerous to travel all the way from Europe to America at that time. More than likely, you might not survive it. But the pilgrims found out about it, and they wanted to escape, and the London Company liked the idea of working with the pilgrims because they knew they were honest, and they knew that they would do the right thing. And so then they worked out a deal. They told them that you can be in charge of the ship to make sure that the riffraff, those soldiers of fortune and prisoners that would have been on there with them, didn't get into any trouble. And so they got a charter from the King of England to go to the New World and settle Virginia. Now, something interesting about Virginia, because Virginia then was a lot bigger than it is today. Virginia at that time was most of the East Coast, extending all the way to the Mississippi River. And so two ships set out, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. 
But a couple of days on their journey, the Speedwell begins to take on water. And so they return to port to do repairs on the Speedwell. This takes a little bit of time, about a month. Then they go out again. And the Speedwell, after a couple of days, again, is taking on water. Well, by this time, it's late summer to early fall. Of course, hurricane season is coming on. And so they tell the Speedwell, you just go back and we're going to continue on. So the Mayflower keeps, the Mayflower keeps going. And they do hit storms. And what happens with those storms is it blows them about 500 miles off course. Blows them north in their course. Now, they were at sea for close to eight weeks. Eight weeks at sea with no provisions and no water now that they have finally spotted land. And so when they finally do spot land off the coast of Massachusetts, they're ready to get off the boat. And where do they get off the boat? Or where do they find an acceptable harbor? What we know today is Plymouth Rock. The ship anchors and the Puritans start telling the soldiers of fortune and the prisoners on the boat what to do. But now there is a problem. They are told that they will not tell them what to do. The soldiers of fortune and the prisoners rebel because the charter was for Virginia not for Massachusetts. And so then the pilgrims realize that they're right, these soldiers of fortune and prisoners, and they have no control over them. And this is where we get the idea, we are in charted territory. That's where the terminology comes from. They were in charted territory, uncharted territory. So the pilgrims come up with the idea from that point to govern by election instead of by a king, they start with the Mayflower Compact. And off the Mayflower Compact, the foundation of America was built. It was a blueprint for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now, when they get there, and they get off the boat, there's no one there. It is just barren of natives. Why? Why is this? Because 10 years earlier, other explorers, as we read earlier about how this worked, had been there on fishing and maxing, mapping, ex, <laughs> mapping expeditions, and they had brought smallpox. So all the natives died, and no one wanted to live there. I mean, it would be like me saying, I've got this mansion that I want to sell you at a really good price. Everyone died in it. We don't know why. Would you like to buy it? Nobody wanted to be there. You can imagine a disease sweeps through. They don't know what's going on. Everyone dies, and everyone died. Nobody would want to be there anymore. And so... Before all this, though, there had been an exploration, an exploration by a vessel run by Captain Wellmouth, who took five natives captive, and he took them back to England. And one of those natives was a man named Squanto. You probably, history's, uh, lovers of history would have heard of Squanto. Now, he gets taken to England. And in England, he learns English, and he gets a lot of valuable education. But he wants to go back to the Americas. He wants to return home. But it's really the providence of God that had allowed Squanto to get this incredible education of English and also a lot of things that he learned about the white man that allowed him to be really a diplomat for the pilgrims. And so the pilgrims go through this horrible winter where lots of people die of starvation. And then in the spring, lo and behold, here comes Squanto out of the woods. And the pilgrims are all freaking out. They're like, there's a native. And then the natives start speaking to them in King's English. And so... They are amazed by this. The reality of it is that Squanto had probably been in London longer and more recent than any of them have. And Squanto, at this time, had discovered that his tribe, the Patuxek, were extinct. This is where they would reside in the summer, his tribe. They would move from the coast 
uh, inward for a warmer climate in the winter and then back to the coastal region. But the pilgrims basically adopted him. And he teaches them how to survive and he acts as a diplomat for them with other tribes as well. And today we celebrate Thanksgiving, the only really true Christian American holiday. Well, did the earth help the woman as we see in Revelation 12, 16? Well, the pilgrims literally believed that they were a fulfillment of Revelation 12. They believed that they were a people of prophecy. And looking back at it all today, I would say they were. What about you? If we take Bible prophecy from a literal historical perspective, this makes a lot of sense. So then, we see that the church woman and the earth, America, was helped by excuse me was helped by america and now um as i said earlier the puritans wanted to escape forced worship by the church of england they were wanting to escape certain holy days what were they well it may shock you to know that christmas and easter are not really centered in the bible where do they come from well we really have to go back to the bible to understand this in revelation 14 8 revelation 14 8 and we're going to look into more of this, Revelation 14, on our last night because there's some very profound things we should understand from there as well. But in Revelation 14, 8, it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then if you skip with me to Revelation 18, verses 1, also read more about this Babylon. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Now, from a Bible prophecy standpoint, it makes perfect sense that God started with Babylon in our prophetic record. Because it is from Babylon that he received all the false ideas that we are living with today. These ideas came down from pagan Rome or came down to pagan Rome, passed on to papal Rome, and even to America. Protestantism. So as we close, let's discuss a little bit of these ideas that were passed down. It all starts with a mother, a mother named Semiramis. Semiramis gave birth to Nimrod. Now we talked about Nimrod our first night. Let's go back there. In Genesis 10, we talked about Nimrod. In verse 8 of Genesis 10, we read about him. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Verse 9 says he was a mighty hunter. What made him a mighty one and a mighty hunter? He was a hunter of men. And this will make more sense as we learn a little bit about the history and legend of Nimrod. Before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erek, and Akkad, and Kelna, and the land of Shinar, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom being Babylon. Now, Nimrod 
was the first king to wear a crown to represent the sun. Why did Nimrod wear a crown? Because the idea was the king illuminates his people. The story goes that Nimrod incestuously married Semiramis, his mother, and by marrying her, he received the all-seeing eye. If you take out a dollar bill and you look on the back of it, you see a pyramid with an eye on top. That is the all-seeing eye. It goes all the way back to Babylon. Now, Babylon being the glory of nations, the head of gold and the line of head of gold of Daniel 2 and the line of Daniel 7, the ideas of Babylon have literally spread all over the world. Semiramis has gone by other names as well. And some of you might recognize some of these. It was Isis in Egypt. It was Hertha in Germany. Devaka in India. Salib in Asia. Fortuna in Rome. Shingmu in China. Columbia. Ashtaroth to Israel. You read a lot about Ashtaroth in the Old Testament. They got involved in Ashtaroth worship. Ishtar to Babylon. Frigg, the Nordic wife of Odin. Disa to Canada. Irene, Iana, Aphrodite, Venus, Minerva, Athena, Ceres, Demeter, and Terra. All these different names going back to the idea of Semiramis, the mother of Nimrod. Now, Columbia would be significant for us in America because who is the capital or what is the capital of America? The District of Columbia. Washington, D.C. resides in the District of Columbia. The Statue of Liberty. Might be shocking to some of you to realize this, but the Statue of Liberty is a direct representation of Semiramis. And so the legend goes that after Semiramis died, she returned to earth in a large egg. And this large egg fell into the river Euphrates. The egg was pushed to the shore by a dove, and Semiramis came forth from the egg as Ishtar, or better known as Easter to us as we know it today. Now, this is also known as the moon goddess. And this is where we get the name Monday for our second day of the week. It is the day you worship the moon goddess in paganism. Semiramis, in an effort to show gratitude to the dove, turned the dove into a rabbit. And this is the sign that we get of fertility. Now, this almost seems comical. I see some, spaces, some smiles on faces in the audience. It's going to make me laugh as well. It seems comical. But this is what the pagans believed. This is what they held to. And it's sad that today we have picked up a lot of these ideas. So then the phallus, as we think about the phallus symbol, another sign of fertility that we commonly see in America is the obelisk. The obelisk, and almost every single town you will go into, you'll see an obelisk in America. That tells you a lot about the influence on that town. Even in graveyards, you'll see obelisk. What do obelisks represent? They represent the phallus of Osiris or Nimrod. The legend is that when Nimrod died, he was cut into 14 parts. And his phallus was given to Semiramis, and she reanimated it. And then had an immaculate conception and birthed Tammuz. See how this parallels with the Christian faith? Now, she commanded then that the people would worship the sun in memory of the mighty ruler Nimrod. And so today, Sunday to the pagan, was the day you worship the sun or the sun god. Now, similarity of this story is that of Osiris, Isis, and Horus from Egypt because really the Babylonians probably picked it up from them. But it's been passed down, and the Bible identifies it as Babylon, the mystery religion. And we have taken on a lot of ideas from Babylon. Now, during the spring equinox, this worship centered when the sun once again rose from the dead. 
And the idea was that the goddess Ishtar would be fertilized by the rain of March, which would bring forth the fruit of spring and harvest. Now, when we come to the wintertime, the sun would eventually die and bring winter upon the world again. Now, another idea that comes to us from all of this is that in May, we have the symbol of phallic worship when young girls will dance around the maypole. This is a symbol of fertility worship, a fertility ritual. Now, how did all this happen that today we observe so many of these pagan rites? Because America is professedly Christian. Well, before the, Paul, excuse me, before the fall of pagan Rome, Constantine, in order to unite the empire with a new religion, being Christianity, a religion that was gaining incredible ground among the pagans to Rome, or of Rome, he wanted to make everyone happy. So what did Constantine do? Because Constantine was a pagan sun worshiper. But he was wanting to unite the empire under sun worship so that instead of worshiping the S-U-N God, they would now worship the S-O-N, the Son of God. Let's talk a little bit about Constantine. Constantine the Great, also known as Constantine I, was a Roman emperor who ruled between 306 and 337 A.D. Born in Nasus, in Dacia Repensius, which would be modern Serbia today, he was the son of Flavius, Valerius Constantinus, a Roman army officer. His mother was Empress Helena. His father became Caesar, the deputy emperor in the West, in 293 A.D. Constantine was sent east where he rose through the ranks to become a military tribune under Empress Diocletian and Galerius. In 305, Constantinus was raised to the rank of Augustus, senior western emperor, and Constantine was recalled west to campaign under his father in Britannia, being Britain. Constantine was acclaimed as emperor by the army at Eberasium, modern-day York, after his father's death in 306 A.D. He emerged victorious in a series of civil wars against emperors Maxentius and Licinius to become the sole ruler of both West and East by 324 A.D. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Although he lived much of his life as a pagan and later as a catachium, he joined the Christian faith on his deathbed, being baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia, he played an influential role in the proclamation of the Edict of Milan in 313, which declared religious tolerance for Christianity in the Roman Empire. He called the First Council of Nicaea in 325, which produced the statement of the Christian belief known as the Nicaean Creed. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built on his orders of the purported sites of Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem and became the holiest place in Christendom. The papal claim to temporal power in the Middle Ages was based on the forged donation of Constantine. He has historically been referred to as the first Christian emperor, and he did heavenly promote the Christian church. Now, this is what's interesting. Some modern scholars, however, debate his beliefs and even his comprehension of the Christian faith itself, and I would say that that would be a true estimation. And that's taken from John Julius Noritz, his work called Byzantium. You see, it was with Constantine that we have the birth of papal Rome. But something that we must keep in mind as we begin to close this evening is there was a real struggle for the change from pagan to papal Rome. And we're going to talk more of that tomorrow night. Our last night together, because we're getting close to that, we've been three nights together, our last night together 
we're going to tie all these ideas that we've been learning thus far into one big picture for us now living in modern times. What does all this history tell us? How can we tie all this together and then hopefully keep going forward? And then tomorrow night, as we discussed Islam on night one, we're going to bring it more clearly to point where we'll have Israel as well involved in this. Islam and Israel tomorrow night, starting from Daniel 11. But what we need to remember is we're just hitting the broad points, the high points of everything, the, the broad strokes, the forest instead of just the trees. But if we were able to dig deep, point by point, we would continue to see how that history only confirms the big picture that we've been getting. But before I close, I want to leave you with one more idea this evening. If I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. And we read, If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What is all this really about? It's about us turning back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about turning away from these erroneous things that have been brought down to us, starting with pagan Rome, well, actually starting with Babylon, being passed down to pagan Rome, then passed to papal Rome, and now even passed down to our time. Turning from those things and turning back to the God of the Bible, understanding what is for us in his word, that he will heal us, amen, and bless us. And so I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow night, and with that we'll close in prayer. Father, I come to you again in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for all your love and mercy to us. I do thank you so much for the sure word of prophecy. You really have given us history in such a way through the prophetic record that your people would never need to be ashamed about anything and that we can know with a certainty of your soon coming. We can't know the day or hour of the coming, but we can know the times and the seasons. We can know to look for these things just as we are now moving into almost full summer. We know from spring we see the trees begin to bud and the leaves shoot forth that summer is nigh. So even now as we see all these things in history, looking back, all coming to pass now to converge into one point that Jesus, you must be coming soon. So I just pray for a continued blessing over our study in these meetings. And I thank you for your love and mercy to us. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions.